Hello and welcome to another edition of Two Guys in a Chainsaw. I'm Craig. And I'm Todd. And today we have a special guest with us. Uh, today we have Jordan. Jordan is a former student of mine, actually, and a uh, former student and current friend. Uh, say hi, Jordan. <laughs> hi. <laughs> and uh, because uh, we had a guest uh, today, we let her pick the movie. So, Jordan, why don't you tell our listeners what movie we're list- or talking about today and why you picked it? I chose the 2012 movie Sinister with Ethan Hawke, and I chose it just because I love this movie. A lot of people just say they don't like this movie, and I don't understand why, because when I watch scary movies, like, I'm easily startled as a person. I spook a lot. Like, I'm like a horse, basically, (laughs) and... um, like this like movie just really met my expectations because even though I startle easily, I'm not really scared or by a lot of horror movies. So this one, like when I go into a movie, I'm looking to be disturbed and like this one disturbed me. It really stuck with me and that's why I really like it. So that's why I chose it today. Are you a disturbed individual? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't ask my psychiatrist. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, Sinister is from 2012, and um, it was directed by Scott Derrickson. And I remember being really excited about this movie because they had a really good marketing campaign. I felt like the uh, trailers were really good and, and intriguing and scary, um, and so I wanted to see it. And if I remember correctly, I think I saw it in the theater, and I wasn't disappointed either. It's a movie that does rely on jump scares uh, some of the time, um, but it's kind of an intriguing story uh, as well. I mean, when it boils down to it, uh, what we get is kind of uh, your demon story, demons um, meddling in the lives of, of people. Uh, but I, I thought that it was a unique take uh, and and some good performances in there. Jordan, you mentioned uh, it stars Ethan Hawke. Ethan plays Ellison Oswald, who uh, is kind of a down-on-his-luck true crime writer. He had written one book, Kentucky Blood about a true crime that had done really, really well. Uh, And I think that was kind of his first big success. But after that success, uh, he had written a couple more true crime novels that just hadn't gone very well. Um, In fact, uh, it's indicated that one of his books presented a theory that maybe got the actual killer off. Uh, and so he's not he's not doing that great. And um, what's happening at the beginning of this movie is that he and his family, uh, who consists of his wife, Tracy, played by Juliet Rylance, uh, his daughter, Ashley, played by Claire Foley, and his son, Trevor, played by Michael Hall Diodario. They are all moving to a new location so that he can write his uh, next book. And the location that they're moving to, unbeknownst to his wife and family, uh, Ellison has bought this house where this murder has taken place. And and that's how the movie opens. We see this eight millimeter footage of, I think, if I remember correctly, four people being hung from a tree. And it, it turns out that this is the tree that's in the backyard of this house that they're moving into. The movie relies pretty heavily on this 8mm footage, uh, and I think that that's one of the strengths of the movie. Uh, this 8mm footage is, is, is really unsettling because I don't know if it's just the nature of the way that it looks on the 8mm film, um, but it looks very real. You know, eight millimeter came out, I think, sometime in the 1960s. And that was really the first time that amateur filmmakers had had an opportunity to shoot their own stuff. The movie kind of explores that. You know, there's there's all these different snuff films throughout the movie. And we see the first one at the very beginning. um, And it's troubling. You know, this 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 family, including children, uh, being hung from uh, a tree. uh, And it's difficult to watch. And we we see several more of those throughout. And that's that's kind of the the setup is that they are there in this place where these murders took place. And the twist is that in this murder, and we find out subsequently that in this series of murders that have all been uh, captured on 8mm film, an entire family is killed, but one child 
uh, goes missing uh, and 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 is not found. Um, what did you all think of uh, the the whole eight millimeter thing? I thought it was really effective. I thought that was very effective to just start off the film like that, and it just gave it like a very disturbing theme and like. While starting off like that, I feel like it's almost a little ballsy just because it's like, what if the rest of the movie doesn't live up to this one, you know, 30 second snuff film at the beginning? But I mean, I thought it set up a great theme throughout and I thought it was effective. I agree with Jordan. I mean, that was one of the things that the uh, marketing campaign capitalized on was this eight millimeter stuff. And I, I agree. I think that it was kind of ballsy to start it out with such intense imagery Unless you're going to maintain that throughout, it could have fallen flat thereafter. Um, but that that same sort of tension and that same sort of unease that was created with that that very first opening scene, um, I thought that uh, they did a good job. I mean, it, there was there was good payoff. It wasn't just the hit you once uh, and it's over. And so I thought that was good too. Yeah, I think the thing that's creepiest about the eight millimeter, especially to us today, is the silence. Uh, you're seeing these videos, and we're, we're so used to seeing videos with sound uh, that we're really able to transport ourselves there. Whereas, and, and I actually have, I don't know about you, Craig, uh, Jordan, you probably don't, <laughs> but I have 8, mil- I have eight millimeter um, video of me as a kid. Um, I, there's actually some 8 millimeter of me shortly after I was born. So I can actually go back and look at some of these, these film strips. Uh, but the thing about it is there's no sound. Uh, they did make some uh, sort of experimental 8mm where they had a magnetic sound uh, track at the edge. It's pretty rare. Uh, most of these film strips, when you watch them, all you hear is the click, 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 click of the projector. And so you you get this uh, simultaneous, you get this voyeuristic quality to it where you're looking in on this family. But frustratingly, I think just there's some part of you that can't hear what's going on. And that... Uh, it just adds to the unnatural. It's like it's natural, but it's unnatural, and it, it sets you a little at unease. Does that make sense? Yeah. And uh, this first one, you know, is just creepy because we're seeing these four people there, and they're tied, they're bound, and they have four, you know, hoods over them. I mean, you can't really see them. It's from a distance. And then slowly, a limb gets cut off on one end where the ropes are strung across, and so as that limb falls, the four of them slowly rise into the air and you see them kick. But, you know, what you don't hear is the screaming, the noise that they would be making, any of that stuff. It just plays out silently in front of you. And it just creates this distance that that even makes you feel like you're watching it, I don't know, through a distant window, uh, unable to do anything about it. And every single one of these film strips that we see in the movie are like this. It just makes it even more unsettling. I thought it was really good. Yeah, and not only is it the whole sound thing, but there's just something about the video quality that kind of makes you feel like you're removed from it. I mean, it's just a little bit... I don't know. It's it's a little bit jumpier than digital or, or even more advanced film. And the thing, you know, like we see several of these throughout and they take place in different time periods. And I, I think that just the the quality of the film, like you said, kind of makes you feel removed. It's almost dreamlike in a way, but yeah, night, not just dreamlike, but nightmarish. Like it's it's uh, you feel like an observer of something that you should be intervening in, yeah. but you're just, you're you're just that far removed from it. And and I, I th- thought that was really cool. I think the like Super Eight films can also almost create a scarier effect for modern audiences too, because, you know, just based off the film, we don't know, you know, what the time period is. And so for, you know, a modern audience like me, I mean, I barely remember only having a landline. I barely remember, you know, not having a computer. So today I feel like since we have all these connections to help and stuff like that, it is scarier to see something that could be back then where they wouldn't have been able to call for help and stuff like that. And I mean, we later find out that this murder is fairly recent, but you know, the quality of the film gives it that aura that like, we don't really know when it was. And I remember seeing this in the theater. My dad took me and my sister and I was probably 14. My sister was 16 and the, the movie just starts off like this. And I look over at my dad and he's like, Oh God, like what do I take my kids to? <laughs> That's awesome. (laughs) You bring up an interesting point there, actually, about the medium. 
I mean, the way that we get introduced to the, the Super 8 movies later on is that, as Craig said, Ellison, who is writing this story about this actual crime that's taken place, unbeknownst to his family, they are actually renting out the house that this family lived in. And part of the suspense in this movie is, is, is actually seeing how long it's going to take for him to reveal to his family, you know, they're not going to be happy about this. But uh, he goes up into the attic as he's exploring and he finds this box that's marked home movies. And when he opens it up, there's the projector inside along with a stack of these films. And that's the thing about Super 8 that is so different for modern audiences is that this wasn't an immediate thing. You know, you can't go out and shoot it and then immediately rewatch it. This is something that takes time and care to preserve and to to develop. So you you shoot something, right? And then you take it to a place, you get it developed, you bring it back, and then you've got to store it. And anytime you want to watch it, you have to haul out this projector and darken your living room, set up a sheet and, and get it going. And so really anything that you record on Super 8, uh, the fact that it exists at all means that, you know, a lot of care was taken uh, to preserve it. And so there's a preciousness, I guess, to these films that you just when he opens the box and you look at them, you know, OK, these are significant videos for some reason. And then when you see the contents of these films to think that somebody thought that this this was worth recording and developing and saving and labeling carefully and putting in a box and, and going through the trouble of pulling out and watching later um, just is is way creepier. Right. It's it's that. It's that serial killer who really relishes in what he's doing. Well, and that's part of the mystery. I mean, you know, the, we kind of jumped over some of the setup. It, it doesn't really matter. You know, they're here in this town. The law enforcement isn't particularly happy that they're there because they know what he does, and they know that he hasn't really painted law enforcement well in his books in the past. Well, you know what? I do have a couple extra copies of Kentucky Blood in my office. If you want me to get one out and sign it for you, I'll do that. No, thank you, sir. All right. Is it the writing? More a matter of content. You don't seem to care much for our profession. Not everybody in your profession gets it right. Well, I've read your books, neither do you. Look. <laughs> oh, you got it right in Kentucky blood, I'll give you that. It's a fine piece of writing. But uh, cold in morning, you got it wrong. Blood diner? Yeah, look, that wasn't my fault. Right. Your bad theory helped a killer go free. You ruin people's lives. Now, this town doesn't need that. It needs to heal. It needs to forget. And you sure don't want that circus that you bring with you. Well, there's a missing girl involved here. The the wife is is not particularly happy because, you know, when he's working on these books, it takes a toll on their family. You know, the, the people in the towns where they live when he's writing this book, uh, it's not easy for the kids in school. And the wife talks about how she gets dirty looks in the supermarket. And so there's all this tension anyway. And then, like you said, he, he finds this box and he starts watching these films. They're moving, of course. So he's taking a box up to the attic, but he goes up to this attic and there's just this lone cardboard box sitting up in the attic and he's you know immediately taken by it because why would it be there um, and then he finds all these films and he starts watching them and it's obvious from the beginning that these are snuff films all of them well not all of them most of them start out innocently you know it just it looks like home movies i mean when he when he pops in the first one it just looks like somebody's you know old-fashioned home movie and that's great but then after a time uh, the film cuts and it cuts to these really disturbing scenes of these families that we had seen before getting murdered. He sets up this room. He's got kind of like a in his office. It's almost like a war room. You know, it's it's the classic detective stuff yeah, where he's CSI. got <laughs> exactly he's got crime scene photos and all maps and all kinds of stuff set up. And, and he's writing like really obvious questions everywhere like. Who murdered her? And who is this person? It's kind of cheesy at some point. <laughs> it is a little cheesy because it's obviously for us. You know, it's obviously for uh, the audience because he writes down who made the film. And, and then. First uh, note. <laughs> right. I think that's like so true to like Ethan Hawke's character, though, in this film because I think he's the perfect antagonist. One, because he does everything wrong, his family just eventually meets their demise because of him. And two, just his character, like, 
as a whole is so pretentious and he just takes himself so seriously. Like he always wears that card again. I don't know. I could just go <laughs> in on Ethan Hawke. He always wears that card again, no matter like what it is outside. Like he's always just in a cardigan and sweatpants, maybe jeans once. Yeah. <laughs> and then his glasses make him look so pretentious and his hair is always just like that perfectly like, tussled but like also decent looking he's like that guy in college who just like minors in poetry for like, <laughs> giggles takes himself so seriously like who murdered her well no kidding ethan <laughs> <laughs> that's what we're here to no. find out buddy yeah <laughs> Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that's the thing. You're, you're right, Jordan. I mean, it's difficult to feel sorry for them. Like you said, I mean, this doesn't turn out well. And that's actually one of the things that I like about the movie. You know, I like horror movies that um, really go dark and, and things don't just wrap up nicely in the end. Um but you're right. You do get frustrated with him because he finds this box and he's watching all of these videos. And, and you know, there's one of them where he sees – it seems like it's the 70s or the 80s, and he sees these people, like, having a picnic. But then he sees them, like, the whole family, like, chained up in a car. Yeah. And, and then the, the car gets set on fire, and, of course, they all die. And then uh, one of them, the one that was, I think, maybe the most disturbing for me, uh, was one that was labeled Pool Party 1966 or something like that. And you see all these people having fun in the pool, and then it cuts, and you see that they're all, like – chained to these uh lawn chairs and the lawn chairs just get drug into the pool and they all uh drown there i thought the and, most disturbing one for me and especially for my father who i was sitting next to for two hours during this movie uh was the lawnmower one uh, yeah <laughs> that <laughs> yeah that that one too that one comes later in the movie i feel like they saved that for later because it is you know like you, you see this family and then all of a sudden you're just watching this nighttime kind of lit tracking shot of this lawnmower just going over the grass and then out of nowhere into the frame comes this person laying on the ground and the lawnmower just goes right over him yeah. and, and there's oh. and there's not yeah oh my gosh and <laughs> and Ethan Hawke jumps in the movie and and I totally jumped i guess these 8 millimeter films the filmmakers filmed them all and Ethan Hawke knew what was going on you know like he knew what the premise of the movie was but he didn't see um, any of the films until they were actually shooting it. Uh, and so his reactions on film are actually his reactions to seeing these for the first time. And, and, it, and it's good. You know, he reacts much in the same way that we do. You know, he looks away as soon as that person comes into frame on the lawnmower one. Um, but it, it's difficult to feel sympathy for the guy because the whole time I'm thinking – Call the police, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like, you know, he finds the box. That's super weird. And then he finds all these snuff films. That's super weird. And I get it. You know, they establish that he doesn't have a good relationship with law enforcement. And and I understand that, you know, if he were to turn these tapes over to the police and then, then that he would lose access to them. I get that. But there's even one point in the movie where he said I think he says out loud. Maybe just talking to himself that the killer brought this box back and left it here. Why would he do that? Well, if you think there's some killer out there who's planting things in your house, yeah. call the police. Yeah, and get out of the house. <laughs> exactly. You know, he's, yeah. he's got this wife and two kids, you know, young kids, you would think. But, you know, of course, if he did, then the movie would be over and, and that wouldn't be very exciting. But Another way that you don't really feel terribly sympathetic for him, although this to me is a fault of the film uh is this parallel um tension that we have between him and his family like like you said jordan he comes off as really douchey and obsessive about his work to the point where his whole family is kind of tired of it yet it starts out i mean they know what they're in for i mean this is this guy's living he writes these true crime novels and they keep you know, having these conversations with him. His first day at school, Ellison, and he's already hearing the grisly details of your mystery. Uh, well, what did he hear? Exactly what he drew. That your book is about a family that was hung. Yeah. Christ, Ellison! But that's all he heard? That's not enough. No. 
Look, I'm sorry he had to find out like this. All right, I am. But come on, I mean, it was bound to happen. Really? That's your response? You think that makes it okay? No, it doesn't make it okay. All right, nothing about what happened to these people is okay. But bad things happen to good people, and they still need to have their story told. They deserve that much. You're a real man of the people. Oh, come For some reason, he's supposed to keep from the kids... Uh, exactly what he's writing about so that they don't get disturbed, which is an almost impossible task, um, which, you know, just doesn't even seem very believable. But I feel like it takes great pains to the point where I was rolling my eyes um, the first part of this movie, where we're constantly being reminded how much his family doesn't like what he's doing, or at least he's walking on eggshells around them. I was just as annoyed at his family as I was at him. You know, I think you're... You're supposed to feel that he is really putting them out and he's really getting selfish. I felt like his family's expectations were completely off the wall. Yeah, the mom's only one. What is the mom's name? First of all, is it Tracy? Yeah, it's Tracy. I'm pretty sure they only say it like once. Did anyone else find it just very random that she was British? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Like any every time I watch that, she's always just like screaming, Ellison! <laughs> and I just get so like tripped up by it. But her only purpose is just to yell at Ellison and just say, I don't want to get sour looks from the neighbors anymore. I want to go to the store in peace. And if weird things are happening, we need to get out of here. That's her only purpose is just to yell at Ellison. She's so annoying about it. But then again, she's the only voice of reason. Right. In this entire yeah. film, yeah, I, you know, I wasn't really bothered by the family. Um, I, because the 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 feeling that I got was that this was kind of a last ditch effort. Like his career is 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 bottoming out, and um, he really needs to write something good if if they're going to be able to continue to live the way that they want to live. And that's the other thing too. You know, you kind of don't feel all that sorry for them because you know that he is just in this for the fortune and fame. In fact, you know, I feel like we're kind of being critical of the movie. I really do like the movie. I think it's a good movie. But uh, it's hard to feel for them because even though, like, you know, the wife at one point says, if this goes sour like the last time, I'm I'm taking the kids and we're going to our sisters. But yet she hangs in there. You know, they're still there. I mean, if he really is that douchey, you know, just leave. Um, Yeah. And and there's one point there's there's one point where he sits down and I think this says something about him as well that he sits down and watches his old interviews um, <laughs> from from when he <laughs> from when he was famous and not only that you know I don't know if this was intentional or not um, but he's watching it on VHS and the VHS tape is all kind of warped and stuff which indicates to me that he's watched this like hundreds of times <laughs> like he's worn out the tape and yeah. uh, in in the interview the guy is like so why do you do this why do you do this and he's like uh for Fortune and fame. Oh no, just kidding. Justice. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then the guy's like, "Well, at the end of the day, do you feel better about the fortune and fame, or do you feel better about the justice?" And he like gets a real serious look on his face. Oh, the justice for sure. And you know that's total bullshit. You know, yeah. like he really is in it for the fortune and fame, and that's that's why he's there, and that's why he's doing all of this, um, and that's kind of why he allows his family to potentially be endangered because of, of the potential reward. And um, so it's, it's difficult to um, sympathize with him as a character, especially when not only does he find all this, like all these tapes, which are horrifying, but weird stuff is going on around the house from the very beginning. You know, he's hearing, bumps in the night you know he's hearing bumps in the attic um and he goes up and at one point he finds a scorpion up in the attic uh which has some relevance later on when he kind of figures out what's going on same thing he he'll wake up in the middle of the night and the wife has made a big deal about the fact that his office door where he does all his work always needs to be locked um and it never is that's the other thing that's <laughs> <crazy>. <laughs> 
<laughs> like she makes this huge deal out of how it has to be locked all the time. The kids can't get in there and it's never locked. He'll wake up in the middle of the night and these snuff films will be playing unexpectedly. You know, at, at one point, uh, the bumps in the night apparently turn out to be the daughter. Like, I feel like that's their first night there. And she, she says she can't find the bathroom. And so he helps her find the bathroom and whatnot. Another and there's time, the son who just has those night terrors all the time. Yeah. And that was another one of the images from the trailer. Um, like Ethan Hawke is, is, you know, skulking around his house in the dark and he just <laughs> sees this box like in a door frame and like the camera just kind of pans in on the box. And then his son just like flops backwards out of the box <laughs> in a real, in a really unnatural and unsettling way. Yeah. Who, um, when they're asleep is like, rising backwards out of a box <laughs> how do you get into a box backwards like you have to be crouched down you can't just like suddenly appear backwards out of it to be fair it's really effectively creepy like i, yeah. I remember that was one of the uh that was one of the things from the trailer i was like oh man this movie's <laughs> i want to see this movie um and it is freaky and they explain it away you know the kid had had night tears when he was younger he hasn't had them for a while but you know now that they've moved maybe it's the trauma of moving ellison finds at some point he hears all these big huge bumps in the night from the attic and they're these big loud bumps i i really don't even know how he explained that away because when he goes upstairs it turns out that there's a snake apparently this snake has been making all this noise but he finds the snake underneath like a box lid like a cardboard box lid and underneath there are all these childlike drawings of the various murder scenes that he's seen um on these snuff films uh and and still despite all this he doesn't say anything to his wife you know like it's as though he just goes on with this I, I don't even know how to justify it like how he well, wouldn't think that his that he or his family were in danger well i'll tell you how i initially justified it and that was the movie does seem to make a big deal at least initially about his drinking and uh he you know he's downing whiskey as he's watching this his wife at one point makes a note uh comment like you're 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 already through a bottle you know, we're not even we haven't even been here a week. And I thought there's this part of him. OK, he's kind of alcoholic and he knows that he is. And so he's struggling with himself. Like, are these things that I'm looking for real or are they a part like an alcoholic who knows he's an alcoholic and knows that he might be seeing things? And I you know, when I first saw this film, I actually thought that that was like maybe we're supposed to think this is real, but it's actually happening in his head. How much of this is real? How much of this is, you know, his own personal breakdown uh, due to the alcohol and due to his mental problems that he's imposing upon this. And so, you know, he's not actually seeing these things. He's not actually hearing these things. And maybe he's even imagining himself wandering through the house because this guy can do about anything in this house and it doesn't wake the family up for anything. Right. <laughs> and, and, you know, the other thing this guy cannot do to save his life is turn on a damn light switch. <laughs> Oh, my word. Uh, every single time he's plotting around here in absolute darkness. And it's what makes this movie really creepy, by the way. Um, it's very effectively done in the dark. But the problem with it is any given moment, he's about two steps away from a light switch and he, he chooses to just wander around in the dark. <laughs> Why does he even work at night? Because his kids are at school during the day. I don't know what his wife does with her life because not enough attention is put into yeah. her. But he never works during the day. You very rarely see him work during the day. He's just like under the cover of nightfall, burning the midnight oil. Right. Well, yeah. and, and to be, it doesn't, you know, of course, you know, darkness and shadow, all of that's very creepy and stuff. But um, I, I have to say that there were several times throughout the movie where I was like, I have no idea what's going on because I can't see anything. <laughs> like, oh, <yeah. laughs> it, it was so dark. I had no idea uh, what was happening. But, you know, what it boils down to oh, – oh, and Todd, what you said about the drinking, I mean it's not like that is um, subtle. You know, uh, at, at some point in the movie, he makes a friend with a deputy who – this deputy is a fan of his, and um, he has this, uh, this moment where the deputy is like, 
You know there's a page in your books where you always say nice things about all the people that helped you out? The acknowledgments? Yeah, well, yeah, and, and in each one there's always like a line that says, you know, I, I couldn't have done this without the tireless efforts of deputy so-and-so from the local police department. Right. Well, I, you know, I could be like, you know, your deputy so-and-so. You know, I mean, if you don't already have one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are a few things you could do for me, actually. Really? Yeah, this could be perfect. Do you have a notepad? Um, yes. Do you need a pen? Yes. And so he does start to help him out, and, and, and they become friendly, and at some point the deputy comes over, and the deputy figures stuff out. There's been this series of murders, and nobody has put together that they are connected, but they are connected in that every family that has been murdered has at some point lived in the home of another one of these families that has been murdered. And nobody has put this together yet, and that's what Ellison is putting together, and that's why he knows that he's onto something big. Like, if he could crack this, it really could. He, at some point, he says, this could be my in cold blood. Uh, you know, he knows mm -hmm. this is a big deal. Um, but when the deputy gets involved and, and Ellison starts having the deputy do some detective work for him, the deputy figures it out, too. But at one point, the deputy comes over, and Ellison's like, all this weird stuff has been happening. Have there been any reports about weird stuff happening in the house? Were there any weird stories about the family that lived here? And the deputy's like, uh, no. But every time I've come over here, there's been an empty bottle of whiskey in your office. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, dude, maybe lay off the whiskey a little bit. Uh, yeah, that deputy's smarter than he appears at first, isn't he? Like, yeah, he, he is. He's a little dumb, but then he sits down and has that conversation with him, and you're like, well, this guy's the smartest person in the movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's, he's not stupid. It's funny because, you know, he looks kind of, I mean, he's a good looking guy, but he looks kind of dopey and you expect him to be dopey. But at some point he's like, dude, I've got a degree in criminology. I know when murders are connected. <laughs> like he, he really does. <laughs> he knows what's going on. And, you know, throughout all of this, everything that we've been talking about, you know, we talked about the kid in the box and how that was weird, but strange things have been going on. The The daughter is allowed to uh, paint uh, on her walls, but eventually she paints something outside of her walls, uh, and she says that she didn't do it. It was the little girl who used to live here, the, the little girl who is missing, the one that didn't appear in the murder tape. Also – the, the more closely that Ellison looks at these videos, he starts to see this ghostly figure in the background. Okay, so it, it ends up that it's this demon um, named Bagul. But when you first see him, it's just kind of this ghostly image in the background all the time. And he looks like kind of a, a cross between like Michael Myers and the crow, <laughs> like um, <laughs> white, white face, but with these dark, almost like painted on that triangular eyes kind of. It, it's so funny. You know, you read things about how films are made. Um, and I'm just so surprised sometimes like they, the, the filmmakers wanted, I guess the director, I presume, um, wanted a really creepy image for this guy. So he just did a Google search. Like <laughs> he, just, he just Google searched like creepy images and he found one that he liked and he contacted the person who owned the image and he bought the rights to the image. Like I would never think of, of stuff like that. And uh, the, the same thing for the soundtrack. He wanted a really weird, bizarre sounding soundtrack. So he just looked for stuff online and he found stuff online and he he contacted the owners and he bought the rights. Like, it's just so weird how these things come together. But Did y'all notice that, like, each of the snuff films, they all had their own different soundtrack? Yeah, no yeah. I noticed that, and, like, each time I can't decide if I love or hate it because, I mean, I really love it because I feel like each different soundtrack just matches kind of what's going on and it does give, like, a creepier feel. But then at the same time, you know, the soundtrack always ends, like, when the snuff film shuts off and i'm like well i feel like this doesn't give a realistic feel because snuff films don't have sound or <laughs> right like right no yeah. you, no i thought that the score in general was uh was really good it, it's it's spooky it's 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 unusual it's 
and it's not just during the snuff films either, but uh, even during the rest of the movie, it's just kind of a really bizarre uh, soundtrack. Uh, and and I thought that it was good and effective. I think that the the movie wouldn't have been as scary without the music, to be quite honest. Yeah. Uh, normally, normally that's a criticism I have of a film that relies too heavily on the the music to tell you when you're supposed to be scared. Uh, but in this case, I somehow it just really worked. Uh, and I don't think it would have been as scary without that, you know, if we had just been watching these silently. Um, it ratches, this film does a really good job of ratcheting up tension, but really not giving you a release very often. You know, there, there are a lot of moments where you're expecting a jump scare, you're expecting to see something in the background, you're expecting this, 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 this scene to go somewhere, and you're just right on the edge, right on the edge, waiting for it to happen, and it doesn't. Uh, and the, mu- the music really contributes to that. And, Again, normally these are criticisms I would have of a film, but for some reason it really works in this movie for me. Yeah, I I, I think so too. I mean, you know, all the things that we're talking about, it it seems like we're being kind of critical of things. But the truth of the matter is when everything comes together, it works. You know, it's a spooky film. It's a a suspenseful film. You know, I I think we basically have to at this point get to the fact that it becomes a demon movie. Ellison – he is um, hooked up by the deputy with this occult expert because Ellison sees some symbols in the painted on the walls in the in the snuff films, and so the deputy hooks him up with this guy from the occult who is played by Vincent D'Onofrio, uh, who is uncredited, I think. After a little bit of investigation, this guy tells him it's a symbol associated with the worship of a pagan deity. A deity? What kind of deity? Uh, a, a very obscure one, dating back to Babylonian times, named Bagul, the eater of children. Did you say eater? Yes, uh, of, of children. I think actually, literally, the name just translates to boogeyman. If I remember correctly, it's something like through images, so paintings or, or pictures or photographs or videos or whatever, the images are his gateway into our world and he can come into our world and he can possess the vulnerable and and children are very vulnerable and then some sort of blood sacrifice is required for whatever ritual this is that's basically where it leads up to um you know, we see that uh the little girl uh the the daughter you know she's she's drawn or somebody has drawn this image of bagul uh, on her wall uh, and, and and so we know everything is kind of coming together. And then we start seeing – I almost forgot about this. <laughs> At one point, Ellison is walking around. It's another time. It's the middle of the night. The film has come <laughs> on, and he's walking around the house. Um, and all of a sudden, we see these ghost children or what appear to be ghost children appear. And, and they're – I don't even know how to describe them. It's it's not gory, but they're in this weird makeup where it looks they're like – They're very like they're, ghoulish and – you know, right. ghastly. Yeah. And at times it's not... it does look a little low budget and cheap, to be honest. Yeah, I thought that <laughs> scene could have been done better. Like, I thought there was, like, a better way, possibly, to convey I that like... all of these, like, dead kids are around. I thought it was just odd, though, because it was, like, him walking around trying to avoid all of, you know, unbeknowingly, like, avoiding all of these kids who just exist in this ghost dimension where apparently gravity doesn't work well either. <laughs> Right. I I liked the cinematography. Like it was kind of neat because it seemed like the kids were moving in a kind of ephemeral slow way. I liked that. Um, But the the makeup uh, was a little odd. Like I I couldn't tell what they were going for. And, And what I read was that they really, really, really were going for a PG-13 on this movie. So what? Yeah, they wanted PG-13 for this movie bad. And so there's very little gore. I mean, at the very end, there's blood on the walls and stuff. But other than that, there's very little gore. There's no swearing. There's no sex. Um, They really wanted a PG-13, but they ended up getting an R just based on the content alone. So I don't know. Maybe, you know, maybe if they hadn't been thinking about that, maybe the the kids would have been gorier or something. I don't know. I think the lack of gore and the lack of things like sex and cursing and stuff like that that we perceive as bad does work very well though 
Oh yeah, I agree yeah, entirely. It's, it's, you didn't notice yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I didn't no. even think of that, but now that I think of it. Right. Yeah. No, it works and it, so it's well. Still, it's totally effective and it, it's still really scary. I mean, and, and there's certainly a lot of implied violence and, and, and those snuff films, they are disturbing. You know, I can understand why it got the R anyway, because it is just it's it's really uh, uncomfortable to watch. But, you know, so he starts seeing these ghost children. Finally, eventually, after all this crazy stuff has gone down. I think what tips it off is he wakes up in the night and he goes and it sounds like the projector is running, but he goes to where the projector should be and it's not there. And so he walks out into the hallway and he sees the light from the projector coming down through the entrance to the attic and he climbs up to the attic and just pokes his head up through the attic floor and he sees for the first time these ghost children and they're sitting there watching a film strip and it's the demon bagul in the film strip and then the the demon pops his face down right in front of his face like <laughs> like he's there in the attic and it's a jump scare but it's a good one you know i yeah. jump uh, um, and that's uh, he, he takes the, the film strips and he takes them out in the backyard and he burns them and the wife comes out what the hell are you doing? we have to leave here what's the matter? what's happened? you were right I made a mistake we should have never come to this house we have to leave now oh you're freaking me out here get the kids pack the car we have to leave and I thought for sure there would be something that would prevent them from leaving, uh, which 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 seems to be the case in these types of like haunted house movies and stuff. I thought that they would end up having to go back to the house, but they didn't. They they go back, I guess, to their old house that they hadn't sold yet. I feel like this is the point of the movie where you're supposed to think, oh, good, they got away. But of course, you know. No, of course they don't get away. Um, and and that's when that's when the deputy calls him and says, "I've made this connection. Every person, all these murders that are connected, they had all previously lived in the house of somebody else who had been murdered. Um, so the implication is that you can try to run away from it, but once once it's on you." <laughs> you're, you're done. Yeah, it's kind of like it follows. <laughs> right, right, right. So they're in their new house, but Ellison goes, I don't know why, but he goes up to the attic in the new house or the old house, whatever, and the box of films is there. Despite the fact that he burned it and we saw him burned it, burn it, it's there. And not only is it there, but when he looks through it, he finds an envelope that says extended cuts. And he pulls out these little pieces of, of film strip. And we had seen earlier, because one of the times that he had been uh, looking at the film strips, he had paused it on a frame of Bagul and the film had burned up. So he had looked up on the Internet how to splice the film. And so he splices these extended cut films in. And what is revealed is that the missing child from each of these unexplained murders is actually the one who perpetrated the murders. And is filming it, yep. Right, exactly. He's watching it, and then we can tell that all of a sudden he's getting very drowsy. And that was something I, – I don't remember who explained it. I think it was the deputy that explained it, that most of these murders, the people who had been killed had been drugged. And the reason that that was important was because that meant that the actual murder itself didn't require that much – physical strength didn't require that much exertion um and now that all makes sense because it's kids who are doing it so they don't have the physical strength so they have to uh debilitate their their victims in some way and ellison is you know acting all groggy he picks up his drink um and there's a note right by it that says good night daddy um, and as he's about to pop out or to pass out, excuse me, he sees his daughter standing there in the room with her. And she says, I'm glad you made the movies longer, Daddy. They're much better this way. Uh, and that leads up to <laughs> that leads up to the conclusion, which, you know, it's not like it's entirely unpredictable. Um, in fact, watching the movie again, I don't remember how I felt about it the first time, but watching the movie again, I thought, oh, man, this is so predictable. I don't think that the first time that I saw it, 
I necessarily felt that way. I think it's just knowing what the, the ultimate conclusion is. I felt like this time around it was predictable, but I don't know if I felt that way the last time. Um, but one of you all explain what happens at the end. Basically, Ethan Hawke wakes up and he his daughter has just set up this like elaborate like Dexter kill room in their living room <laughs> with like all these plastic tarps. I don't know where this like seven year old is getting all of this plastic. Uh, but you see Ethan Hawke or it's Ethan Hawke's eyes opening, I'm pretty sure. And you see the mom and Trevor you know, like bound and gagged with like duct tape and stuff asleep. I'm pretty sure. I don't think they're awake. Mm -hmm. And then Ethan Hawke wakes up and he is also bound and gagged. And then it's like storming out because of course it is. And Ashley is standing over them with her like paint smock on and then with just an ax. And you don't really see her do anything about you know, you don't see her kill them or anything, but it's pretty implied because afterwards there's just paintings all over the walls in blood. And I'm pretty sure she paints the demonic symbol of Bagul on the wall, too. And then uh, I, you see Ashley and then she sees all of the other like ghost children. And it's the very, very ending is on the super eight film. And so she sees the ghost children and then they start looking all scared all of a sudden. And then they run away and then you turn around, you see Bagul and Bagul takes Ashley and then they disappear. Yeah. Um, I think the ending's pretty effective and it's pretty haunting. And like you said, I do feel it's predictable that something's going to happen to them because just the nature of these films, I mean, it's broadcast from the very beginning. It's always a family of four or five people. And of course he's a family with four or five people. So you knew it was going to end uh, here somewhere. But honestly, how it was going to get there, I thought was entirely unpredictable. I have to say that, especially the first time I watched this movie, I was really wondering if how much of this was real and how much of this was just his own breakdown. Because it takes so long to get supernatural. I think the first moment it gets supernatural is at least halfway through the movie. And that's when we see he has a freeze frame of Bagul in one of the... He has recorded um, with video uh, some, some of these film clips so that he can analyze them a little better in his computer. And we see a freeze frame of Bagul, and while he's talking to somebody on the phone, uh, behind him, unbeknownst to him, we see Bagul's face like turn and look towards him and then turn and look away before he you know, turns his head back. That's the first moment at which it, it, it starts to feel supernatural. Even from that point on, I was kind of wondering... Yeah, is that where this is going? Is this really going to be a demon movie, or is this really going to be something else? Or is he even going to turn out to to you know kill his own family somehow? You know, I, I felt like it might be going in that direction as well. There were a number of different directions that could have gone, and uh, the movie kept it pretty open. I thought until toward the end. Yeah. So in that in that way, yeah, I thought it, I thought it was a little less predictable. Looking back, I do agree that. You know, it is predictable, but I think the first time that I watched it, there were just so many different directions that it could have gone. And I also think it was almost a good plot twist to have Ashley be the killer and not Trevor, because, I mean, that plot twist is revealed even before they move. I mean, it's probably revealed halfway or two thirds of the way through the movie that she's the one being contacted by these ghost children and is just kind of under Bagul's spell. But I thought it would have been more predictable almost to have Trevor do it. Cause Trevor's got mm. this like emo, my like my chemical romance phase going on where he just probably hates his family and he's in that phase. No, I thought the end of the movie was really effective too. You know, I think that it's uh, clever and brave when filmmakers decide to go with the bleak at the end of a horror movie. And, um, you don't see that terribly often. Um, usually, uh, the, at least one of the good guys gets away and you've got the potential for a sequel with your main cast and not the case here. Uh, there, there was a sequel to this movie, um, and I've seen it, and I don't really remember all that much about it other than that I thought it was just meh. Jordan, have you seen it? I have not, but I watched the trailer and I read the plot online, and it does sound meh, doesn't sound as good. I feel like a horror sequel, sequel especially horror, like the sequel never really is as good. And so I feel like it definitely was one of those that they threw together to make some money off the franchise. 
Yeah, I think so. And I think that part of the reason that the sequel didn't work as well for me was because um, there wasn't any mystery. You know, like we we knew who Bagul was. We knew what was going on. Um, and so it just it, it wasn't that uh, effective. But um, this movie in and of itself as a standalone film, as much as we, you know, were a little bit critical about some elements of it, uh, I, I think it's good. I think it's a good movie. I think it's suspenseful. I think there's good mystery. I think that there are good jump scares. The demon himself um, is pretty scary, and I think that part of the reason that he's pretty scary is you don't really see that much of him. Um, you know, he's kind of kept in shadow uh, or in these fuzzy images. I like it. I, I do, do too. Yeah. I've always liked this film. I came out of the theater. I'm like, that was awesome. And my dad's like, that wasn't good at all. I don't like that. And my sister <laughs> had nightmares. And my dad doesn't like this film. My entire family at my dad's they don't really like this film but one time we all just watched it like five times in one day (laughs) so i don't know my family were one that like we can't just sit down and watch a movie the first time so like i sat down and watched this movie i was going to watch it with my stepmom but then she was doing other things she couldn't pay attention so we like i finished it then we immediately restarted it i watched it with her then my sister showed up home with her boyfriend they wanted to watch it and my, <laughs> oh my sister God. doesn't like it so we i watched it a third time then my brother and his girlfriend showed up they wanted to watch it so we watched it again and i'm pretty sure then later my dad came home from work and we watched it again that's wow. hilarious i I, <laughs> I don't know if i could watch it five times <laughs> no in a row way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> i think i did have a nightmare that night just from like sheer overload of <laughs> that movie <laughs> Maybe your nightmare was that you had to watch it again. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you for joining us for another episode of uh, Two Guys in a Chainsaw. Thank you very much, Jordan, for uh, being our guest. You are an excellent guest. I can only imagine that we will have you back sometime in the future. I hope so. Thank you for having me. No problem. If you enjoyed this episode, we have lots and lots of back episodes on iTunes and Stitcher. I think we're on Google Play, too. You can find us on Facebook. And if you do find us on Facebook, we would love to hear from you. We love hearing your feedback. Um, We love when you join the discussion. And if there are any movies that you would like for us to watch and talk about, we would love to hear about it. So until next time, I'm Craig. And I'm Todd. And I'm Jordan. (laughs) With two guys and a chainsaw.